about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way, it might be really good. Wow. Hello, and welcome to It's Good, Except It Sucks, a movie-by-movie and television series-by-television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Thor, released in April 2011, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see the first ever showing of Ken Loach's controversial 1971 documentary The Save the Children Fund film, Martin Scorsese's George Harrison documentary Living in the Material World, or Jennifer Anderson in Just Go With It instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Thor when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. Feels a bit inconclusive as the action never quite invests fully either in Earth or in Asgard, but it looks and sounds amazing and the cast are fantastic. Thor was always a challenging comic to get your head round anyway though, so this is really quite an achievement. That's what I had to say about it though, and joining me to give her thoughts on Thor is board game expert and film critic Vicky Gregorich. Vicky, where can people find you? You can find me at Get Into This, which is a web scene and it's where you'll find my film reviews. Well, speaking of films, Vicky, what happens in Thor? Well, we find ourselves in Asgard, the home of the Nordic myths. But in this film, it's uh, somewhere in space, meeting Odin, who's trying to decide whether Thor should be king or not. It's not that clear why how he's making the decision. But luckily, the decision is taken away from him by some frost giants. And then chaos ensues, and we end up on Earth, in the middle of New Mexico, I think. But I, it's not that clear, really, is it? I, don't, I think in terms of a, a plot line, it's not that clearly laid out. It's more of a visual thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to start by asking, Vicky, how much did you know about Thor before you saw this film? Do you mean the comic, or do you mean Thor? I'm going to go for both. <laughs> the comic, not very much. I was very familiar with how Thor looked as part of the cartoons, because as a young person... I had the Captain America cartoon on VHS and it was one of only maybe three VHSs I owned. Another was Spider-Man and the other was Mighty Mouse. So <laughs> I watched the Captain America series quite a lot and Thor rocks up in some of the adverts at the beginning and end of the, um, of the VHS. So what I was really familiar with was a long flowing blonde fellow who was, you know, someone I considered to be He-Man-like, wearing a, a rather lovely helmet. But actually, I know of Thor in terms of Nordic mythology pretty well because I was really into mythology as a young person, Greek, Roman, Nordic. And actually, the travails of Thor, Odin, Freya and Loki were all really familiar to me with all of their stories of war and fighting. So a lot of the Asgardian stuff is slightly more exciting to me in this film. Well, talking about the mythology of the film itself, I mean, it's got a really long, really interesting backstory. Because you mentioned Thor showing up in the Captain America cartoon. That's pretty much all he did until this point. I mean, he'd had his own cartoon in the 60s. But then I think as well, the, one of the TV movie revival the Incredible Hulk series. Thor shows up in that. It doesn't really work, if you ask me. He shows up in pretty much every Marvel cartoon, but nothing really is a starring vehicle until this, and yet this goes as far back as 1991. Apparently Sam Raimi tried to get the rights to do it, and there were all kinds of rights complications at that point. 
never really came about. And I would say in the interim between, you know, the idea first being floated the Thor film and the film finally coming out, Lord of the Rings and everything that followed its way kind of stole its, well, thunder, I suppose. <laughs> the other really odd thing is, originally in the picture to direct this was Guillermo de Toro. And apparently, it sounds like there's a big dispute about it because he wanted to get rid of any kind of blockbusteriness from it, just make it dark and, you know, grim. And a bit like the Lord of the Rings films, and they were just like, no, it's got to, you know, straddle both. I think they had the fingers burn with the Incredible Hulk film because that's a bit grim. Yeah. But then along comes Kenneth Branagh. And we were talking just before we started recording about you asking how he came to be involved. Because he yeah. is an unusual choice. But looking into it, it seems like around that time, you know, because, I mean, we remember when we were growing up, he was quite, he seemed quite a pompous figure. He, every, he thought everything he did was really highbrow. Yeah, you know, and it's like, yeah. if you want Shakespeare, you go to Branagh. Yeah. Shakespeare delivered in a certain way yes, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And he's quite hamster cheeked, isn't he? That has no bearing on this. <laughs> But it seems that around this time, when you look at his, you know, filmography and his career and his personal life and so on, that he seems to be wanting to enjoy himself a bit more because it's around that time he started doing Wallander on BBC Four, which yeah. for someone as big as him was quite a step down. So he did it because he wanted to do it. He started showing up in guest roles in TV series, including sitcoms. He's also in The Boat That Rocked, but we'll gloss over that for now. As the world should gloss over, yeah. But I think, obviously, they'd seen he was more in that frame of mind, and they had expertise in handling, directing really classical things, and adaptations, you know, like yeah. Frankenstein and so on, really well. And they'd obviously thought, he's the man, he can do the intricacies of it, but he seems to be interested in doing something fun as well. Yeah. I think that's exactly what this is. It's fun. I think he was perfect for... He, I wouldn't have put money on it being perfect for it, but I think that's how it turned out. I agree, and I think it's added a level of creativity to it that perhaps you wouldn't have got with someone that understood how action films worked. Mm. I think it's probably what's quite interesting about this, maybe from Kenneth Brown's point of view, obviously I don't want to speak for him, but the visuals of it, the, the CGI, the, the, the place of Asgard, which is all, obviously all completely in a computer, probably won't have been like anything he's done before. If there was any special effects in his films, they would have been very minor or just to wipe out a wire or something. So he'd maybe he approached it from a purely curious point of view. And, you know, if it was a disaster, probably wasn't going to knacker his reputation like it would for an action director where this failed. So maybe he just thought it was low risk and he could just get to be curious, creative through it, which is fascinating. But it does add something. There is something classy in here there's something it feels stable and steady so I, I do think there's something in this film that is of Kenneth Branagh that makes you feel like you're in a safe pair of hands but it's still very visually exciting. Well and what supports that is I mean there are a lot of people in it particularly in the cast that you know have worked with him regularly the interesting thing though is the music by Patrick Doyle who worked on a lot of Kenneth Branagh's films but equally to that, he insisted that the Foo Fighters did the song for the soundtrack. Oh, really? Which, you know, it's, it's kind of a Mr. Kennedy from Fist of Fun in terms of, you know, uh, you should, do you like them? I do. But, <laughs> you know, that shows he, was, he wasn't just thinking, let's make it as grand as possible. Yeah. Let's have a fun song in there too. Do you think if Kenneth Branagh was in this room and we asked him who his favourite band was, he'd say Foo Fighters? I think he'd say the Spin Doctors, to be honest with <laughs> you. <laughs> 
But as well as that, I mean, that's interesting about the casting because obviously Tom Hiddleston was somebody who worked with him a lot and Idris Elba, who we might come back to in a second as well, a couple of other people in the cast. But Chris Hemsworth was a bloke out of Home and Away. Yeah. And he'd obviously just like seen him and thought he'd be good and auditioned him. And look at how brilliant he's gone on to be in pretty much everything. And he's ideal in this as well. Oh, he is. What I really, really love about Chris Hemsworth in this film is sort of not far off the same sort of time he was in Cabin in the Woods. But what a lot of people don't realise is Cabin in the Woods was filmed the year before Thor, mm. but released the year after Thor. And in Cabin in the Woods, you know, Chris Hemsworth is playing, sort of, it's, you know, it's a kooky film, it's a, a horror film. Um, he's playing, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a, an idiot, a bit of a muscle man. And it, the role is entirely different, but almost Cabin in the Woods almost certainly wouldn't have got a release if it wasn't for Thor, because mm. obviously Chris Hemsworth was then stratospheric through mm. use of this film. And uh, what a wonderful thing to know that, you know, Cabin in the Woods, mm. which is probably one of the best horror films of the last decade, wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Thor. Or indeed for Kenneth Branagh. How much are we going to have to come back and thank this mortal <laughs> man for in the future? Cross the rainbow bridge of Asgard, where the booming heavens roar. choices as i say idris elba was this was just at the point where he was starting not just to become well known because it was it was when we properly latched onto the wire over here which is quite amusing to me because you know admittedly a few years after it was on in america but i'd already seen it all mm. and it was quite funny to see people suddenly say have you heard about this new program called the wire in sort of 2011 but there was that and he just started being in luther on the bbc but also he was starting to become, I suppose you could say, a lady's favourite. Forever on the front of certain magazines without his shirt on. And for him to willingly go to this role, which is basically Baco foil head to toe, and not looking like a hunk in any way at all. I mean, that was a deliberate thing on his part. I think he really enjoys it. And I do recall at the time, this was the first time where people really started having that disgusting conversation that is people of colour shouldn't be playing people of Nordic backgrounds mm. and that I remember do remember this being the first time of really hearing that and the whole time thinking this is a comic book why does it make any difference it's all fantasy but I do recall this coming back and being very focused on um, the character of Hemdall and, and Idris Elba getting a lot of grief for it a lot of hate for it which mm. we've seen reflected massively through the rest of these comic book films and is both ridiculous and stupid but I think his presence, his voice particularly, I and mean, he has a really strongly structured face, really, really suited the character. You do trust that he is the person looking after yeah. Asgard. You do understand why he has that place there. He's a lot of authority. Um, I really like it, Giselba. I have to be honest, I've never seen The Wire. Well, that brings me on to a question that I've been wanting to ask since the introduction of this, which is, in this, you've got a lot of characters that are from the comics. You know, you've got The Warriors 3... Lady Sif, you've got Thor's parents, Loki, there's the, is it the Destroyer, but the, the enchanted suit of armour puts in an appearance here. Obviously, that's not from Nordic mythology. No. Also, Hawkeye, who was introduced on credit in this, is not from Nordic mythology. Let's just be clear about that. And let's just be clear, <laughs> boo Hawkeye, the worst Avenger. <laughs> Please don't turn off everyone. But, I but, hate Hawkeye. <laughs> but how many of them do actually appear in the actual mythology, and how close are they to? Well, I think the 
Warriors 3 are kind of representative of the ideas of warriors. I do believe those are warrior names from Nordic mythology. They definitely have Nordic origins. So they, they definitely have their source there. But uh, in, um, in Nordic mythology, it's very rarely the warriors that are talked about. It's always the gods and what the gods get up to. Mm. So, you know, I think the, the key thing that most people would remember is you must die in battle to go to Valhalla, which is, it is heaven. And you can only do that if you're a great warrior. So mm. all of the people in Valhalla are basically horses, which get to go to Valhalla, and warriors that die on, in, in battle. So some of that is reflected in the film, some of that, uh, the, those mythological ideas. But yeah, the people themselves, you'd have to be really deep into Nordic mythology to understand <laughs> their origin. And Hawkeye doesn't appear in Nordic mythology, no, does it? thank goodness. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Ugh. And it's interesting, they have revisited those characters quite a lot because they appear in a lot of the later films. And the really interesting thing is, because obviously when they're on Earth, they encounter S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-hmm. And Phil Coulson, the main S.H.I.E.L.D. agent at this point, obviously became the main character in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in which Sith, or as you called her, was it? <laughs> Steroid Liv Tyler. <laughs> shows up quite a lot in that, in sort of crossover episodes, and seeks out S.H.I.E.L.D.'s help for when Asgardian things are causing problems on Earth. So they obviously really felt they'd done well with these characters, and I, I think they have. I think so too. I mean, in this film, they're really visually striking if not a little uh, one-dimensional personality-wise. So there was room to expand on them. But if I may just share, may share with you what I've called their guy. <laughs> so obviously Sif is um, steroid Liv Tyler. And then you can guess the next three. Um, there's poor man's Donnie Yen, Carrie Elwee's son as a musketeer, and an extra from Brave. That is the whole <laughs> of Thor's gang uh, uh, and Loki. <laughs> and what about the enchanted suit of armour? I think I'm a happy with the enchanted suit of armour. <laughs> I think it's interesting as well, you know, Jane, sort of Thor's love interest on Earth, was in the comics, because there's the whole sort of backstory that's left out of this, which is, I'm not sure if it's at the very beginning of the Thor comics, but at one point he's exiled to Earth without his memory, and he thinks he's Donald Blake, a surgeon. And Jane was a nurse in the hospital, and, you know, obviously that began in the 60s, and since then Jane's gone on to, she became Thor at one point. Oh, yeah played a large role in a lot of other... Apparently she'll be Thor in the next Thor film, which oh, is exciting. Is it Natalie Portman in the next Thor it film? It is, it is. Oh my goodness. Because but... I, I have to say, I think she's <laughs> incredibly miscast in this. I really like Natalie mm. Portman. I think she really is an excellent actress, but she seems so out of place in this film. The chemistry's mm. not there. They are physically so odd to each other they did nothing for me i really do think she was a massive weak point and i've I've literally written down she is as dull as dishwater in this film and she's better than this she's a better actress than that and i think the character deserved a bit more than she got well they did make jane an astrophysicist instead of a nurse which i think is i mean i've got many problems with the current hating on marvel that some people are doing as is reflected my introduction to these but one of them is people have this idea that you know, there's nothing progressive in them. Aside from the fact Black Panther, Captain Marvel films, like that, there's little touches like this that have updated. I mean, it's even more so in the TV series where I think it was entirely deliberate. I mean, we'll come back to this at uh, you know later point. But Claire Temple, the main character in all of them, played by Rosario Dawson, her character is sort of based on the character that was in a Marvel comic for girls about a nurse. Oh. <laughs> and they've made her into this kind of badass, you know, uh, surgeon to the vigilantes and yeah. often the main driving force in resisting the threats in them. So there are all these little touches that I do think... Yeah, I think 
think in of the a early, huge improvement. Yeah, I think in the early Marvel films, it's not so much how women are represented particularly, but just there aren't that many of them, yeah. really. What's really nice in the Thor film is Kat Dennings is witty. Yeah. You know, she's not just a cipher. There's, there's nothing mm. about... She's not even. She's not a big part, but she's just funny. And normally that kind of light comic relief role would go to a man. So mm. there are some gentle touches. These films eventually get a lot more diverse and a lot more interesting from that point yeah. of view. But they don't do women too badly in the early Marvel mm. films, particularly. Pepper Potts in Iron Man yeah. is in many ways brighter mm. than uh, Tony Stark. She knows how to run a business as well, you know. And certainly um, Peggy Carter in, yeah. in Captain America is a genuine badass. So in the early films, there's not enough women, but... Mm. <laughs> The women are good. Yeah. Uh, the character Jane is fine. I just think she's poorly cast. <laughs> Natalie Portman just doesn't do it for me in this film. She's not funny enough. Mm. She's just not funny enough. What I really liked about this film was it was surprisingly witty. I remember it being witty in the cinema, um, but it really holds up on film. There are nice moments of laughter. Um, I think the key thing that really strikes me about the film is without this film, without Thor, there would be no Guardians of the Galaxy. That's really, really clear that Guardians of the Galaxy would have had no future without this film. My favourite thing about Chris Hemsworth in this film, definitely, is that he shows anger by acting with his nostrils. <laughs> <laughs> well, what direction do they move in for, for what emotion? <laughs> they don't even pulsate. They just go wide like a frog's neck. <laughs> wide like a frog's neck? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing the nostril movement right now. Can't see it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I really like Stellan Skarsgård. I think I've got a bit of a thing about him that I did with uh, Mark Hamill in the later Star Wars films. In that, as older men go, he's a bit of a babe. <laughs> <laughs> There's something I really like about his face. Well, I'm glad we've got that as a segue from you talking about you know empowered women and films to the next bit because. This scene entirely features men, which yes. is the tag scene, which is leading into Avengers Assemble. Oh, yeah. Which is where it's basically him being controlled by Loki. Yes. Getting Nick Fury to tell him about the Tesseract. Yes. And it's not a very long scene or a very revealing scene, but it's really dramatic. It is really dramatic. And I think it's um, it's really heartening that you realise at that point that Stellan Skarsgård actually has a future in these films. But I'm going to be quite honest, the thing I mostly thought was, I wonder how much Marvel contributed to the eye patch industry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's only one thing left for me to ask now. Vicky, if you had a flying hammer capable of summoning thunder, what would you use it for? I would punch Jeremy Renner in the face. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a novel answer. So, Vicky, thank you, and Excelsior. Excelsior. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and lots more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.